It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert. And I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure. Because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Plopcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. My name is Fergus and I'm your host. And every week we head out on adventures to find wonderful wildlife and tell stories from the landscapes we explore. And this week the stories are as ancient as they can be. We're in Dorset with Plopcast regular Annabelle Ross hunting 500 million year old fossils in the company of author and paleontologist Wolfgang Grotka. He has amassed an incredible collection of the strangest and rarest fossils on Earth. So join them for a weird and wonderful adventure into prehistory. Later, join me and the podcast team in the studio. And don't forget you can contact me on editor at countryfog.com with any thoughts you have about what you've been listening to. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please, please, please don't forget to leave positive feedback on whichever podcast provider you use. So today, Wolfgang, we were going to go ammonite hunting. I've been building up to this for a long time. But now, what's happened? Well, this English thing called rain. For the last few days, we've had the most wonderful rainstorms and the quarry is filled with water. Quarries are usually in low places and that's where the rain has gone. (laughs) <laughs> and clay and rain don't mix, so we can't get in there today. And um, is there anywhere else we can go ammonite hunting today? Well, the area that we're in, which is in northern Dorset, is absolutely full of ammonites because 170 million years ago, this was a beautiful, open, shallow sea, and there was very little land, 
And, um, you know, so these sea creatures, basically, that lived here 170 million years ago, fossilized as they died, and um, we're now finding them on the tops of all the hills around here. So we would have been in deep water if 150 million years, standing where we are now, we would have been in deep water. Yeah, most of uh, southern England was a shallow sea, and it went right across Europe and so on. And um, there were some islands, of course, and even in the main street of Sherborne, near where we are, they found dinosaur skulls and things like that. But uh, it's rare, because they, were, they didn't live there, they were washed out there. So here we see mainly marine creatures. So the, and the other thing which I tell people is, you know, we're so worried about climate change. 10,000 years ago, this was covered in three kilometers of ice. Yes. Now that's serious climate change. Yes. That's just 10,000 years ago. Um, could you tell me, what, what is an ammonite? An ammonite is the shell of a cephalopod or cephalopod, depending on how you pronounce it. And basically the ancestors of, of cephalopods today are octopuses, cuttlefish, squid and those. But they don't have an external shell. The ammonites were really uh, one of the last of those animals that had external shells. So the, the only thing that fossilizes is not the soft parts, the squid-like animal, but the hard exterior shell. So that's what we call an ammonite. But it's actually, the ammonite is actually the animal, but all that's preserved is a hard shell. Um, the the ones that are, are still alive today are nautiluses, of course, and they are also cephalopods. They're actually the ancestors of ammonites. The descendants? No. The ancestors. <gasps> Sorry. Ammonites are all descended from nautiluses. So where do we find nautiluses? Right here. They Nautiluses are the longest living complex animals on the planet. They were there before ammonites, almost 500 million years ago. They survived all the extinctions, and then the final extinction that killed the dinosaurs and the ammonites, the nautiluses survived as well, and they're still alive today. The story of how they actually survived is an amazing story. Um, it's quite debatable. When the dinosaurs went extinct, the planet was ravaged by everything from fires to earthquakes to, again debatable, but 80 to 90% of all life died out. All the large uh, dinosaurs died out. The only dinosaurs that survived were the nimble, small, feathered dinosaurs, and we call them birds today. You can hear them in the background, actually. <laughs> most beautiful little dinosaurs. Anyway, the, the ammonites and most of life in the sea died out because the sea got extremely acidic and toxic. Um, the nautiluses were the only ones to survive. Now, it's interesting because uh, we've recently done some work which tends to show that nautiluses previously lived in very shallow water. And immediately the extinction happened, Nautilus seemed to migrate to deeper and deeper and deeper water and change their diet completely. Now, when you think about it, after an extinction, there's very little to eat. And Nautiluses today eat only non-living things. So they'd eat um, crab carapaces and lobster carapaces and things like that. That's what they live on today. So that what we believe must have happened is that they, were, because the sea was so toxic, they went deeper and deeper and deeper 
and found an environment in which they could live and a diet which sustained them. And that's the only place they live today, is in very, very deep water. But your, um, your uh, collection that we're about to go and see, um, because we can't go ammonite hunting, so we're going to go into your lovely museum today. These have all been hunted already. Yes, so yes, so that's okay. Um, but they, but um, the fossil collection, what got you into fossils? Where did your fossil adventure start? About 50 years ago, I came to work in the UK for the first time. I worked at an international centre in London, and um, one of uh, the we were from all countries, from all over the world. And um, basically, an Italian friend of mine was very interested in fossils. I didn't actually know. You know we were in our 20s and carefree, and he was crazy enough to be interested in fossils. I had a car, so we went down to Lyme Regis, and um, we he took me fossil hunting. And I remember he was much more strong than me, and he ended up carrying about a 20-kilo ammonite back to the car. Um, he lived in central London, and for the next few months, I sort of watched him hammering away at this ammonite. It's a big rock, and eventually an ammonite emerged from it. And I was really impressed, and I, the, the love of fossils has never left me. That was 50 years ago. The small town of Lyme Regis has been a constant thread through my whole life. Um, and I remember the first evening in, in Lyme Regis, uh, as we were sort of marveling at it, he put his, this big rock on the center of the lounge table. And 50 years ago, these hotels were quite basic. And we were sitting in this lounge and soft furnishings and everything. And he had this big rock on the table and we were talking about it. And one of the people in the hotel mentioned a woman called Mary Anning. And I'd never heard of Mary Anning. And they, they were, of course, surprised that I hadn't, you know, and all the rest. And we started this discussion about this amazing woman that had lived in Lyme Regis 200 years before that and had revolutionized paleontology and all the rest. And that was really my introduction to fossils and the same day, Mary Anning. Um, well, it's a strange coincidence because um, when my wife and I met, it was the same sort of big bolt out of the blue because our first evening together, we were chatting, sitting down on the floor actually, when I could still do that. Um, she told me about a visit she'd had to England. We were in South Africa at the time. And... Uh, she mentioned Lyme Regis, and I said, oh, that's interesting. I've just been there as well. And, um, but she'd gone there for John Fowles, the French lieutenant's woman, to track, you know, to kind of trace the history of that. And I'd gone there to, to hunt fossils. And so that was a big, big part of our... The connection between us started the first evening, and the, the connection was Lyme Regis, a place that, you know, anywhere outside of the southwest of England is almost unknown. And so you decided to move down here because of your connection with Lyme Regis? Well, we not directly. Uh, what, what happened was that we were, as a result, we often visited Lyme Regis on, on a holiday and so on. And, um, but we're still living in South Africa. And about 15 years ago, we were on one of those trips and Terry said to me, you've always wanted to buy a house in England. So we started driving from Lyme Regis, and that's how we ended up here, where we are today. Uh, it was actually the very first house we looked at, and as we um, walked out of this appointment with the owners, um, Terry said, no, we, we have to buy this house. And um, as we got into the car, 
the owner of the house handed me a postcard of Mary Anning. And he, I kind of, I was really startled. And um, then he said to me, I'm a direct descendant of Mary Anning's brother. We were both flawed. And of course, um, before we go and look at the museum, one of the things that we've just done, and it will be published in two weeks' time, is published a book on Mary Anning reimagining her, her youth. Yes, I want to hear more about that. So we're going into the museum. Uh, what I started collecting when I got a bit more experienced, uh, I was always amazed that, that all Ammonites didn't look the same and there were incredible varieties and all the rest. And then um, on a particular fossil trip, I found an Ammonite where the shell had uncoiled. In other words, it wasn't a tightly coiled spiral. And I started asking a few of the academics, and they said, oh, well, these are just um, aberrant sort of species, and that you, know, you don't need to worry about those. And I found more of them, and I saw there were some in, uh, in Japan that were uncoiled as well. And eventually, uh, after many years of getting kicked out of uh, the best academics offices in the world, I kind of thought, this is crazy. They're, so, they're everywhere. And I decided to write a sort of an amateur book on, on these uncoiled ammonites. Now, it's not to say there wasn't much academic research. There are hundreds and hundreds of papers on uncoiled ammonites. But nobody had taken the whole story and put it together. So about, um, I think it was eight years ago, I published this book called Heteromorph. It started a kind of a, a small revolution um, amongst academics as well, because suddenly we found that amateurs were very interested in this phenomenon, even though the academics hadn't been. The ammonites, these uncalled ammonites, are quite rare, and the reason that no museums have them is that most museum collections date from 100, 200 years ago, and the tools that the collectors had in those days were very limited. It was basically a hammer and a chisel, and today we have really sophisticated tools. Um, and so we what, what, what sort of tools? The best analogy is probably the, the tools that your dentist uses on you. Okay. <laughs> okay, so they're, they're very delicate tools. And uh, a lot of these uncalled ammonites are very delicate because the shell is not tightly wound. Those are easy to prepare. The, the uncalled ammonites are very difficult to prepare and they never had the tools for those. Today, you know, there's an enormous interest in these ammonites. They're collected wild, widely all around the world. And today, funnily enough, they present us with some very interesting evolutionary problems because uh, if Darwin had known about um, DNA and viruses and the fact that these uncalled ammonites were quite widespread, he might have thought differently about evolution. So what tools would Mariana have been using? Mariana used a hammer and a chisel. Yeah. And for the detailed work, she probably used a little steel needle or something like that. Yeah. Um, that's all they had. Uh, and her, her father and then later her brother um, were cabinet makers, so they would make a frame for the bones that she found in ichthyosaur bones. She'd set them in plaster, and they would make a wooden frame so that they could be hung on a wall and make them more attractive for the people who were buying them. Huh. Okay, can we go and have a look? Oh, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my God. It's quite overwhelming, Wolfgang. Where do we start? 
This is what David Attenborough said the first time he walked in here. I'm truly lost for words. David Attenborough, and he, and he wrote it. Well, he wrote it in my visitor's book, but that's... Oh, and you've... Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I can, I can understand. If he's lost for words... He'd never seen an uncoiled ammonite. So this, this is an uncoiled... Yeah, this is kind of the piece de resistance. You know, this is, this is uh, an incredible example of um, a find in the French Alps. Um, in a beautifully, beautifully fine matrix where a lot of the spines were preserved and so on. And here you have, I think I remember correctly, about 10 species of uncoiled ammonites together with some normal, normally coiled ammonites. It's very rare to find a diversity of species in one piece of rock. Now this is absolutely a single piece of rock uh, but the, the rock in between the ammonites has been removed. Everybody who comes in here, even the staff of the Natural History Museum, will say this is a piece of art, surely this is a, it's been put together. It's not like that naturally, is it? And of course what you're looking at is the, uh, an example of the sea bottom where all these animals have died, their shells have been preserved, and now somebody has come along about 100 million years later and removed the rock in between all the ammonites. The work involved here is about 7,000 hours. It's something, you know, it's, it's, the story behind how this happened is, an, is worth another long story, but it, it just means that there, are, that, that there are or were people who were prepared to put that kind of time into doing something like this. Today you can't pay anybody to do this because it's, you know, they It's unpaid, presumably. Well, it's not unpaid, but you know, you, at, the, at a minimum wage, this will cost seventy thousand pounds mm. just for the preparation time. Mm -hmm. But this was the only guy in the world who's ever done these things, mm. <laughs> and he's not doing them anymore. <laughs> After this one, he said, "I'm not doing this again. I'm going to focus on vertebrates." The guy but, who found this is still around. He's a, yeah, he's a friend of yours. I found him with him. You found this with him? Yes, we were. We were in the in the French Alps at, um, in Haute Provence, and uh, we came across just one piece of this. I mean, I can show you here. You know, this piece here, for example, had fallen out of the mountainside. You can see it's broken there, um, and we saw this in a big rock. So all we saw was a circle in the rock, and we knew immediately that that was a large, uncoiled ammonite. We then we'd already been fossil hunting all day. We're carrying tens of kilos of rocks and backpacks and all the rest. So he came back about a month later and started digging this out of the cliff. Three months later, he had, you know, I don't know what it was, probably 2,000 kilos of rock and then started reassembling this and putting it back together again and preparing it out of the rock. So you, you you see a you you saw a circle in a rock, and that would have been the intersect the cross section of of this one, um, which is about I don't know five in, six, six inches across yeah. six inches across, and but the other thing I'm completely amazed by is these spikes, um, these spines. Sorry, they're called aren't yeah. they on the on the um, ammonite because it's not an, what do you call them when they're uncoiled. Remind me. Heteromorph. Heteromorph. On Many head heteromorph ammonites had spines. And, and some normal ammonites also had spines. But 
what is unusual is for them to be preserved and to have the tools to actually prepare them. Now, a lot of these have been um, replaced they because they are a lot of them were the, because the matrix is so fine. Mm. They leave an imprint in the rock, and the spine itself has turned to dust, but the imprint is still there, so you can cast a copy of the spine, and you have a, an exact idea of what the ammonite looked like. That was that one. Have you got your first, your first fossil discovery in here somewhere? That's a good question. Nobody's ever asked that. Um... The first one would have been a, a, an ammonite from the beach at Lyme Regis, uh, but I'm I'm certain that I don't have that anymore, because as you as you go along, your tastes get more. You collect better and better and better <laughs> stuff, and you tend to keep the good stuff. I mean, it's a normal collector's instinct, and and so the the collection gets recycled, and you're always looking for something better, more unusual, uh, rarer, and. Um, so that's really what you see here is the result of 50 years of collecting all over the world um, and always choosing the best examples of whatever it is that you're looking for. Um, Do you still collect? Do you still go hunting? Occasionally, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm 76 this year. Um, I don't walk as far <laughs> and I don't walk as well. And... You know, the other thing is that it takes a lot of time and a lot of dedication um, to to find ammonites. I mean, if you take Lyme Regis as an example, uh, at every low tide, every day, there are people out there hunting ammonites, no matter what the weather is. They're all in the hope of finding an ichthyosaur or plesiosaur or those things. It's it's probably more popular now than it was in the days of Mary Anning. Because um, there are better tools, it is easier to prepare, it is easier to find and transport things, and the skills of the people um, discovering fossils in and around the Jurassic Coast, for example, are so fabulous. I mean, some of the, the, the young people working in that field now are really repeating what Mary Anning did 200 years ago, but with fantastic tools. So they can, you know, Mary Anning was limited by the quality of the tools and, of course, her knowledge. You know, now, I mean, we, are, we have unlimited knowledge. Anybody can access all the knowledge in the world if they want, choose to. So Mary Anning, yeah, she was self-taught and just, she, I mean, how did she start? Do we know how she started? Well, it was pure necessity. You know, Lyme Regis was a, a summer destination for tourists. This is, we're talking about early 19th century. Um, and it was even believed then that the seawater would help cure certain illnesses, you know, by drinking it, you know, which probably wasn't true. But the point about it was that they were a poor family. Um, her father died very uh, young, and she, her brother, and her mother were left with no income. But her father had taught her to hunt fossils and to mainly ammonites that were sold as curios to the summer tourists. And that was their income. They basically sold it from the front of their house. Um, and it was a very meager income because ammonites themselves, you know, they would sell them probably less than a penny. You know, it was really a very hard, hard life. But occasionally 
they would find something that was more valuable. Like the first ichthyosaur was found when she was just 11 years old, and she found the rest of it when she was 12. So they, this was a giant marine reptile that very few of which had been found anywhere in the world. And this was just a total sensation because nobody knew, it was, you know, it was still believed that the world was 6,000 years old. And here's this animal that clearly didn't exist anymore. Um, and um, so that was the first time that they realized they could make a lot of money. You know, and a lot of money in those days for something that that unusual would be 50 pounds or 100 pounds, no more than that. And that would keep them going for an entire year. But of course, they didn't find another one for a long time. And, and you know, so to, but it set them on a path uh, to looking for things that were really valuable. And Mary was very bright and learned without with minimal education, really just from the, the, the Sunday school at church, you know. Um, so she developed the skills herself and increasingly made more and more academics who filled in her knowledge and she learned from them and ended up, um, before she died in the middle of her 40s, um, basically teaching them about how to find fossils, how to prepare them, how to identify the rocks and so on. It must have been hard as a woman, a young woman as well, to be um, taken seriously at the beginning by these scientists. Oh, yes. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it was against all the norms because by the time she was um, 18, she was already a, a very accomplished fossil hunter and that was the age at which she would be expected to marry. Um, and, you know, that was kind of the ultimate destination of women. that <laughs> was to be married and have children and so on. And she was still supporting her family so and she loved it this was the other part about it that's very important she loved nothing more than to be out on the beach to discover these things and to you know to make notes about them and to postulate what these animals were because nobody knew because all you had was, was a skeleton she made her discoveries as i said in her teens and in her 20s but there are no images of her there's only one image of this Stayed Victorian lady. It wasn't Victorian, but stayed old lady. So um, I got involved in, a, in an AI project um, about six months ago. And the idea was to, you know, to create images from words using AI and so on. And then I quickly realized that one of the people we had no images of was a young Mary Anning. And I started playing with this and started showing it to some of the school kids locally. And um, they would resonate very quickly with the picture of a, of a 20-year-old. And, you know, as a role model, that was very powerful. Uh, I then started um, doing some work with the Lyme Regis Museum, and they are really the, the sort of spiritual home of Mary Anning. And um, in the end, together, we produced a book on the young Mary Anning, and um, the idea was really to, so that younger children could identify with this character. Now, this example of an ammonite here, it's a deep green color, shiny, maker, beautiful. But what's even more interesting are the holes in it. And the holes are from a bite of a large marine reptile. So this 
probably ended its life in, in the jaws of, a, of a, probably a mosasaur, we think, because of the pattern of the teeth. And it tried to bite and probably did. And, and then, you know, might have sucked the animal out. And then the shell dropped to the bottom and was fossilized together with this damage that the teeth caused. And it happened to be in an environment where the shell was, pre was preserved in these glorious colors. Um, now, these are extremely rare to find ammonites with, with uh, evidence of predation on them. Well, even at Lyme Regis, you do find them, but when you have a spectacular preservation like that, plus teeth, <laughs> then you've got something special. And I was really lucky to obtain this one from one, one of the people who found it. But it's become a big business there. They mine this, and rarely they find complete ammonites, but they don't mind that because they just want small fragments of the shell, the fossil shell that's preserved in these beautiful colors. They mount them in rings and all the, just, just like um, you would do with other precious stones. It's, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. So um, can we just have a little look around? I'm not really sure where to start. The ultimate uncoiled ammonite. You know, what, what would you, if an ammonite uncoiled completely, what would you get? You would get a straight ammonite. <laughs> it's like a long sausage. Okay, well, here there's oh, one. Okay. Here's one. People come in here and they say, oh, this is an elephant tusk. Yeah. But it's actually one of the rarest uncoiled ammonites in the world, and it's complete. It's, there are only three known of this size that are complete, and the, they were found in large, heavy stone nodules, and the shell has been polished off to show all the the chambers in the colorful calcite material. And it's an absolutely beautiful art object, but it's totally natural. It's the history of life on earth preserved in stone. These are jewels in my thinking. It's so incredible, it's so incredible. Um, okay, I'm gonna go over here somewhere. <gasps> that was hidden. That was hidden, why was it hidden? Well, it's so big that if you walked in, you would see nothing else but this. You'd only go. You'd only. So go I have right to here. build up the drama until right at the end, you can say, <laughs> "Wow, what is that?" Where do we start? Where do we start with this? Again, what you're looking at here is a very large uncalled ammonite, uh, together with a nautilus, and three or four smaller uncalled ammonites. And a normal ammonite, quite flattened, there's another normal one there. So this uh, is just a conglomerate of a sea bottom from, this is from Morocco. Okay, it's on the Atlantic coast of Morocco. This was found. And the chap who found it called me uh, and said, look, we found something, sent me a picture on a mobile phone. I think I was in Australia somewhere at the time. And he said, I need some money. This is going to be expensive <laughs> to get this out. We are, he said to me, we are 30 kilometers from the nearest road. The only way we can get this out is to break it up and carry it on the back of camels to the road. <laughs> and we need some money to do this. And so I paid for him to do this, to get the, the pieces back uh, to the, the nearest town and to then put them all back together again, and it was then sent to France to be mounted like this and, and finished off. The size is not everything, because you can see that the matrix, the rock that it's in, 
is very rough. And it's exactly the same kind of matrix as we find here in Sherborne. Okay? It's called oolite, and the grains of the matrix are very large. So the preservation is relatively poor. Okay, so the detail that you see on some of the other ammonites is not repl replicated here. But the, the key thing here is, one is the conglomeration of the different types of ammonites, and this uncoiled ammonite is the largest uncoiled ammonite ever found. It's completely extraordinary. It's completely extraordinary. This collection represents 500 million years of the evolution of life. Uh, most of that time, of course, life was in the ocean. And that's where the ocean is the womb of all life. And only more recently, the first amphibians came onto land and so on, and then plants and so on. Um, but um, the ammonites and the nautiluses were dominant in the ocean for such, you know, for more than 100 million years. So let me show you the difference between an ammonite and a nautilus, because this is really where it, it, it start, you start understanding why they dominated this, uh, the ocean for such a long time. I'm just so blown away by all of this. Yes. Okay. okay. So what have oh, we got here? Okay. Yeah. So the first nautiluses that appeared in the ocean were actually straight-shelled um, cephalopods. Okay. And it's only more later that they um, curled up into a shape which is still today the basic um, architecture of a nautilus. The key thing that made these cephalopods different was that they had, sorry, they had chambers which they could use for flotation. So they were the first animals that moved off the bottom of the ocean into the actual water column. And as predators, you can imagine the advantage that that gives you, is that you can look down on your prey move around and just feast as much as you like. Everything else was stuck to the bottom. And there were trilobites and all sorts of other uh, simple creatures. Um, and the, the cephalopods in the form of nautiluses could basically rise above and feast on their prey. Now, these were so successful for more than 100 million years um, that they grew to enormous sizes. Longer than, the shells were longer than 20 meters it's the length of this room. <laughs> and, and we believe that's probably one reason why they started coiling up. So the shell, because as a, it's difficult to maneuver a shell that size. Because, you know, you start off small, you grow up, and you become an adult, and then you become senile and all the rest. And suddenly you can't handle this big shell anymore. So we, we think it's probably one of the things that caused them to coil up into the normal sort of uh, nautilus and ammonite shape. How do they get? How do they get about? How do, do they have legs? Do they have? They used basically. We believe it was like that right from the beginning. They used air to propel themselves. So they blow out air underwater and propel themselves. They were actually moving backwards, like squid and cuttlefish and octopus do today. And they also uh, had ink sacs. So you know, for the, when we did the book launch, we recovered some of the Jurassic ink sacs from fossil squid in Lyme Regis and reconstituted the ink and used them to sign the books. No. So, the, the, so that's the basic architecture of these animals we call cephalopods. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a squid with a, a, with a hard, a hard shell. shell. So first we have nautiluses. For a, you know, almost 200 million years, these guys, with their ability to, to move up and down in the water column, 
were dominant predators. Fish emerged, you know, around about that time as well, so they started having some competition. Remember, fish were the first vertebrates, and our ancestors in a very real sense. And then about the same time, the Ammonites emerged, and there's a, a small difference which makes a big difference. And the small difference was that their chamber walls, like in this Nautilus, the chamber walls that con contained, enabled them to float were straight, okay? And they had a tube connecting all the chambers. When the Ammonites came along, suddenly their chamber walls became more complex. So this is, if you have read a bit about fractal geometry, this is the geometry of nature. These very complex patterns that you see are actually the chamber walls where they hit the surface of an ammonite. Many people come to me and say, oh, I found a, a fern fossil, a plant fossil. And actually what they're finding is actually a part of the walls of an ammonite's chambers. And they're so complex. And, but you can see from the inside that the chambers are also quite straight. Okay. So, so the, it, I can see, see why they say fern, because it looks like an imprint of a, exactly. a fern on the shell. But on if you shell. compare a nautilus shell and an ammonite shell in cross-section, as you can see here, you can see the same architecture. It's just that the ammonite have chamber walls that are much more complex. So nautilus first for a few hundred million years, then ammonites emerge... Ammonites die out with the dinosaurs. Nautilus carries on. Now, here's a little dilemma for Mr. Darwin, if he was around today. Mr. Darwin, why does the, the only complex animal that survives 500 million years without evolving, or hardly evolving, is the only one that survives? So evolution must be bad for you. <laughs> So it's, a, it's just an irony, and um, it's something we don't fully understand. But um, these are things that, with our knowledge today, you can look over that kind of perspective and just ask some embarrassing questions. <laughs> and, and are there still some exciting finds every now and then? I don't think a year goes by without something, some new species being identified um, and it's the same with ammonites, with nautiluses, and with the, the vertebrate marine animals that are found there. So, um, sadly, we couldn't go out today because of the weather. So, um, when I go out on my own, Wolfgang, what do I do? Where do I start? Best thing to do is to take somebody with you who knows what they're doing. That'll be you. You're going to come with me, aren't you? No, I'm not past it, you know. I would, I would always recommend that you take one of the younger people who have a... Greater skills, better eyes, and better feet, you know. Just go and learn from somebody who's already doing it. Yeah, I, look, I think the, and most of the fossil collectors also take out people regularly on fossil walks. I think there are, you know, there are some excellent people who have got so, you know, 20, 30 years' experience of treading the beach every day, and they will help you find stuff that you will never see. You know, you can walk right past it and you wouldn't see what there is. They will spot it immediately. And how, um, is there any, are there any laws around um, fossil hunting? Are, are, are there any, that they don't need to be protected because they're quite hard to, 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 to hunt or, or there's plenty of them? Or? Well, we don't actually know how many fossils there are, but it's an unbelievable amount because if you just think about the countryside 
um, across uh, the British Isles, all of it at one time or another was underwater. So somewhere, everywhere, there are fossils. Um, it just depends how deep they are. Sometimes, you know, they are 30 foot deep or 100 foot deep. Sometimes they come to the surface at the top of a hill or whatever through erosion. And at, at Lyme Regis, for example, the, which is the Jurassic Coast, is spectacular because it contains such a vast era of um, fossil deposits, you know, um, and that will be eroded forevermore. You know, as the sea washes those cliffs, more and more fossils are going to be exposed. And um, if nobody picks them up, they will just get washed and destroyed and, and so on. So, in fact, Britain has some of the best fossil collecting codes in the world. It is more open here than in almost all countries in Europe, for example. People are actually encouraged to collect and to discuss with the local wardens and so on. The only thing at Lyme Regis, for example, they don't want you to do is to dig in the cliffs because that's really dangerous because you might be covered um, in stones, you know, as these things fall. Might be a landslide, and, yeah. And very famously, uh, Mary Anning's dog was killed and she was nearly killed by one of those landslides um, against the cliff. So it's, you know, I think it's a case of being sensible and if you're going to collect on private land, ask the people um, who own the land. I and mean, that's really the the key thing. Um, it's like a mobile phone, really. <laughs> ask the owner's permission. Yeah. Uh, um, your collection in here is 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 just incredible. What do can people come and visit it, or is it is it um, it's not open to the public ever? Or no, look. The term open to the public is, is can be a bit misleading. Yes, it is open to the public, but you have to book a time when yeah. I'm here. You yeah. know, because it's, it's your home. Exactly. So, um, I mean, this is this the actual museum is not a part of my home, but it's a workspace that I, I spend time in. And I mean, every week, especially in the summer, of course, we have people from all over the world visiting. But, you know, it's arranged months in advance sometimes. And, and usually what we, we say to people, if it's something that really interests you, you know, put a group of people together. Get five, ten people together. And we usually ask for a donation to our village hall. You know, and, but basically, you know, it's, I love, and any collector loves sharing this stuff with people who are interested. And, you know, the last thing that any collector wants is somebody who is not interested. <laughs> it's the worst thing, you know, because I think something that makes a collector is always this curiosity of, of life, of life that there was. And you can look at anything and say, what on earth is this? And that curiosity is what makes good conversations, you know. And it doesn't matter how much you know. It's really how curious you are. And again, you know, getting back to Mary Anning, that was her, uh, her characteristic, this amazing curiosity for everything. When there was no information available, there was no Google, no nothing. Even the, the scientists didn't know what she was finding. So, and that curiosity, I think, is what makes interesting people, interesting conversations, and I just love having those kind of people to visit. It's, well, I, I, I'd love to have a bit more of a look around, if that's okay, and if, if, if you're happy for me to, um, to do that. But thank you so much, Wolfgang. It's really so fascinating. 
Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And off Annabelle went to enjoy the rest of Wolfgang's collection. And But what an insight we had. Us who, who weren't there, us in the studio. I'm here. I'm Fergus. I'm the host. I'm here with Hannah and Jack, who helped me make the podcast. Hello. 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 Lovely to Hello. see you. Really interesting insight into how, how the landscape tells stories through the remains of animals. What did you think? That was wonderful. So insightful and helps you kind of think about the world in a different way. Because I don't think I'd ever really considered how many fossils, this is, sounds stupid as soon as it's coming out of my mouth, but like that are underneath the land we're living on now. I kind of have romantic idea of them being the seashore because of having been to Lyme Regis and like thinking of them in kind of stony places, but they're underneath our feet right now. Probably right underneath the studio. There could be all sorts of yeah. things. Yeah. I've heard there's a lot under the studio. Oh, <laughs> like of, of editors past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can find the remains of of old publishers. Yeah, it wasn't interesting. And he's got this specialism. I forgot what they're called. What they're Heteromorphs. called? Heteromorphs. Okay, so these are we all know of these coiled ammonites and nautiluses, but they uncoil. Who knew? Well, Wolfgang knows, and we all know <laughs> now. So he's got this collection of those. That was really weird. And I kind of found the whole idea that there was a nautilus, which kind of looks like an ammonite as far as I could work out, having looked at them on, online. And it was there before them, and then it survived after them, <laughs> and it survives today. And it's just this ever-living creature that never needs to change its ways. Yeah, anything else that you that sort of picked up on? Wolfgang just described birds as feathered dinosaurs, which I guess is correct, but it, it's... Again, it's that thing of like looking at the world slightly differently and being like, oh, yeah, the trees are full of dinosaurs, which I've never really, although yeah. I know it logically to be true, it's not how I would have thought about things. Yeah, I, I wonder whether there are still some arguments raging about whether the birds have moved on a little stage. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I've heard that birds are dinosaurs thing, and it's, it's hard to kind of get your, get your yeah, as you mm. say, get your mind around it, that flocks of starlings, a little di- yeah. just just... Aren't they big ponderous beasts <laughs> that's kind of... I do remember when we munch. had um, chickens looking at their feet and they were very much kind of dinosaur feet. Three toes, kind of this scaly staff, the big nails, 
very dinosaur feet. Yeah, true, true. And that sort of, yeah. So the, And there's more and more findings that show that some of those dinosaurs that we thought were just scaly beasts actually had feathers mm. and the feathers were used to keep them warm. And then they've sort of evolved to make wings of flight feathers and off they went. I think as well, I, I always find it's really weird because you always see fossils and some people go, oh yeah, that's pretty cool, uh, that's pretty old. But it's just remembering as well that how little humans have been on yeah. the planet compared to everything else. Like dinosaurs, mm. however mil- many millions of years ago they were, that was a long time ago. <laughs> no. And like some of this stuff that's coming up is from like just as long ago. 500, well, 500 yeah. million, long before the dinosaurs. I mean, that was an extraordinary thing. These, these yeah. things have been living for unimaginable lengths of time. I mean, yeah. you know, obviously not the same one. They no. die. <laughs> they die and become fossilized, but uh, the species keeps going. Yeah, that's really strange. And I just that, and that stuff, I mean, going back to the Nautilus thing, that this idea that survival of the fittest they just happen to stumble on a design really early on that works and then they haven't needed it. So everything's come and gone and added bells and whistles onto their shells as far as I could work out. And didn't help them. Didn't help the Nautilus must have been sitting there with a pipe going, <laughs> well, if you'd only listened, would, everything would have been fine. Just And so they're, 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 they'll probably, once we're all gone, you know, they'll be going, oh, that algal <laughs> bloom called humans. <laughs> But there was a there was a an external factor to the kind of death of the other species. Yeah, he didn't go into that. I mean, I know there was the meteor, meteor yeah. strike is the main theory now. Is that is that right? Yeah. I think so, as far as I know. Yeah. So yeah, lots of fascinating things. I really like the fact that Wolfgang is highlighting Mary Anning's role in our understanding of fossils, particularly obviously at Lyme Regis, but generally about what we know is some of her really hard work and the difficulty being taken seriously by all these male academics in, you know, we're looking at early to mid-19th century when there weren't that many women, you know, she was a real pioneer. She's been given her proper prominence. Yeah. And that's um, a wonderful And thing. the British Museum are changing some of the um, attributions on their collection so that we know that they were found by Mary Anning and not by the men who she ended some up other selling yeah, yeah, yeah. these that's fossils really to. That's really crucial. So that's a cool thing that outrageous don't you think that she found these things and it's outrageous now but it was completely normal at the time yeah yeah but sort of yeah true true have you guys ever found fossils have you got some fossils in your collection i found what i know know to be bellamites 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 at lime regis so these are parts of like a squiddy thing they're kind of they're very, 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 very they're all, common. They're all parts of squiddy things, <laughs> I think. <but. laughs> and they're kind of bullet-shaped. Oh, okay. Um, Bulletites. Yeah, little tiny guys. Lovely. Jack, you must have been... I don't think I have. No? Never found a fossil? No, I might have done. Well, stop right there, friend. I've oh. got something for you. <laughs> okay, hold on one minute. I want to the weird bag on the table. Yeah, the it? weird bag on the table. If there's a weird bag on the table, you know there's some... Hopefully. It's usually something to eat. Cake. Oh, oh, you're not going to wow. be able to eat this. These Owen and I found, my son Owen and I found, on down on Charmouth, so very close to Lyme Regis. It is a oh, tiny ammonite <gasps> for you. Yes. And an ammonite. There might even be two oh on there. Oh my goodness, that's exciting. Oh, wow. So you've got a little tiny ammonite stuck in the... Yeah, there's um, two little ones on here. Yeah. I've got, I think, two and a half, I would say. So we, I only got one. <laughs> yes, but... So, yeah, I, I really like Jack. Um, <laughs> so we were um, 
we're watching people just chiseling away and splitting these rocks and they left a big pile went over there split a few more went and these the came spoil. out That's so there incredible. we are you, I was thinking, how many how many of these have i walked past in my life <laughs> uh, probably i mean they're in the probably if you walk around walking on them right now yeah and if you walk around Bristol, if you look at the, particularly the churches, some of the marble columns oh, outside course, and things, yeah. you'll see all that. Yeah, yeah. If you can see even with the rock, it's that typical, like, lined yeah, yeah. It's, structure that it's, it's slowly forms. Very it. fragile. I mean, if you took a hammer to it, it would just crumple it's into kind nothing. Of sandstone? I don't know, actually. I should have researched that, but it's uh, it's very typical. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Feels like, um, like a really, really delicate slate. Slatey, yeah. Yeah. You could bite into it and you could leave your teeth marks, hmm. I think. So there we go. Take home an ammonite today. Thank you. And I was just about to say, Jack, that you might not have like found your own ammonites, but if you were to go to Lyme Regis, they have a kind of a rule where if you find something that's like properly large, you have to leave it there. So you can just walk along this, the shore and you can see really, really big ones. It's really exciting. Well worth a visit. Well, the same actually in on the um, Glamorgan coast. Loads of fossils there, really big ones that you can walk along. Uh, and you can go, as Wolfgang said, you can go and visit his collection. You have to get in touch with him. We'll put the details in the notes. So that's what Annabelle's been up to. It's our section, sightings and happenings. What have you guys been up to since we last met? It's been a week. I have seen black-headed gulls in their winter plumage. Quite exciting. Uh, not black-headed gulls. Not black-headed, but white-headed with a little spot behind the eye. I've also seen uh, loads of really beautiful rain showers over the last week. I think the low kind of sun and it being sunny and rainy at the same time, just twinkly. So you get the sun coming through. Yeah, it seems to be every time it rains at the moment I'm seeing rainbow. It's just very delightful. It's been a lot of rainbows. It's been a lot of rain. Even today and yesterday mm. in the office, I've looked out the window and in exactly the same place there's been a rainbow both days. Magical place. I haven't got any of the gold yet, though. (laughs) (laughs) Not tall enough. No, too tall. (laughs) Jack, any, far from rainbows, any exciting adventures? I've not had too many exciting adventures. You've really been locked down. I've really just been, I've been really restricted the last couple of weeks. Uh, I've got, hopefully, getting out again, back to normal. But I have been seeing more foxes. That's pretty good. good I know earlier in the year, there's a couple of little, little ones I would see when it got sort of dusky. Uh, and it seems to be, I think they're just coming back to the same place regularly mm. and then just keep seeing them crossing the road and always so look a bit nervous. See, I always tend to see more foxes in cities than in the countryside. They're obviously yeah. slightly more, I think they're very numerous, but mm. also a little bit braver, mm. not likely to be sort of yeah. come up against people wanting to get rid of them. I know the ones where we've been, I think they're, they're sort of on the, the edge of town and countryside so they're still a bit nervy that they sort of walk into the road and go oh i don't think this is a good idea <laughs> and they kind of reverse back out and <laughs> because you are really you're sort of almost countryside where you are. yeah nearly yeah. yeah okay so you've got the suburban fox yeah Very they, they look breed. a bit yeah. nicer <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah have you seen anything recently i had a really great experience actually i i went on a grassland mushroom identification day um <laughs> So that was just a grassland <laughs> mushroom identification day with some two of Britain's experts, mycologists. And it was just turn up in some lovely meadows in Monmouthshire. And to be in the hands of these people, we were there were about 20 or 30 of us and we spread out across the field just looking for fungi. And 
it was amazing. We found 16 species of wax cap, which are these unbelievable jewels. They get those sort of slimy wax caps, the scarlet wax caps, which are the most beautiful things, golden, orange, all the colors, and lots of other things. There were all sorts of, you know, meadow mushrooms that some are legal, some aren't. <laughs> it was great. To, it was just a fantastic day. And that was with Gwent Wildlife Trust. It's the sort of thing that I never have the time or chance to do. And it was just great on a, like a Thursday after, Thursday morning, turn up, be in the hands of these experts. It was free. So look on your Wildlife Trust. I would say to everyone out there, if you've got the time, Look on your Wildlife Trust websites and see what things are out there because mm. it was a magnificent adventure and um, I can't wait to do another one and maybe there's some podcasts in it, but it was fun, Guy. Oh. <laughs> That's what we've been up to. We've been having lots of fun. Um, we'd love to hear what you, our listeners, are doing in the countryside and whether you are out and about or huddling inside by the fire. Avoiding the rain. I mean, who knows? But you can get in touch with us, editor at countryfile.com, and the very best emails we'll read out on the show. And in fact, I do have one, which I think I'm going to read this week. This is a great one. It's come in, it's a short one. It's come in from Amanda Hughes Horan, who is a regular listener and has been in touch lots of times before. But she says she's back in the saddle over here this morning. She lives in Texas and she sent us a little postcard, a population of black-bellied whistlers, tree-roosting ducks, and they're learning to take a hand out from when she's feeding them. So she sent a lovely little video of them. I'm going to play it to you now. They're very sweet. There we go, black-bellied whistling ducks. I think they live up to their name. I can see them on the, they have black bellies. It sounds like loads and loads of people squeezing loads of, like, dog toys. All of <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, and the video she's taken looks like a dog park. Um, she says she always enjoys listening. Uh, sounded like a great but soggy walk around the hill fort, which is a couple of episodes mm. ago. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, we will send you a book from the podcast library. I have something special for you, which I will pop in the post. As always, our favourite emails of the week, especially if they have sounds, whatever it is. Could be black-bellied whistling ducks, could be waterfall, could be a tractor in the distance. Who knows? Something delightful, a postcard. But the best, we will send out a little present from Jack's podcast library. Full to the brim. <laughs> and that's about it for this week. Do join us again next week. We're off for another adventure into the countryside. But for now, thank you for listening. 